This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States on Wednesday, addressing a nation battered by a pandemic and violent insurrection with a call for unity. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. We've learned again that democracy is precious. Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. On one hand, I can remember the 2016 inauguration like it happened yesterday. How Trump's American carnage speech, written by then chief strategist Steve Bannon, set an ominous tone from the very beginning. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities. Rusted Rusted out out factories scattered scattered like tombstones tombstones across the the landscape. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries. I will fight for you with every breath in my body and I will never, ever let you down. Then came the first big lie about crowd size. It seemed so stupid and insignificant until you look back on what was truly happening. How Trump's proxies took to the airwaves and defended something indefensible. It just wasn't true. Nor was it even necessary. Nobody fucking cared except for Donald Trump, who was obsessed with obliterating the legacy of Barack Obama. And so they lied for the boss, called the lie alternative facts, and Trump began spouting about fake news. Before things had even started, they had gone off the rails. But more importantly, Trump was conditioning his followers into his cult of lies. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. This was quickly followed by the administration's first major moral trespass with Trump's despicable Muslim ban. How quickly and totally we went from the politics of hope with Barack Obama into Donald Trump's darkness. The daily onslaught of tweets, division, and lies became all-encompassing. For many, it was like being in prison within the chaos of Trump's mind. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. Wait a minute, I'm not finished. I'm not finished, fake news. news. Then came my own reckoning with history. Time not only slowed down, it screeched to a fucking halt. In prison, you've got nothing but time. So I was forced to deal with myself and examine my blind allegiance to a man whose very being ran counter to my sense of right and wrong. President Trump's longtime personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, is going to jail. Cohen has just been sentenced in a New York City courtroom on multiple charges. Solitary confinement is a fucking scary place to be when the person who sent you there was president of the United States. Thankfully, I emerged stronger and determined to make things right. So I joined the resistance and fought Donald Trump in the only way that I knew how. I testified before the House Select Committee. I wrote a book, Disloyal, which all of you made a bestseller. Then, 
We started this podcast with the goal of dismantling Trump's legacy. And now, here we are, out through the other side of history and looking back. So much damage has been done. So many lives destroyed. Former President Trump, if you're listening, take these words to heart. You are a disgusting, fucking despicable man, and history will judge you in the harshest of light. Your day of reckoning fast approaches. You will likely be impeached in the Senate and stripped of the last vestiges of your presidential privilege. Never again will you be able to run for office or hold any federal position. You are being banished, exiled, and sent away. As it says in Monopoly, go directly to jail. Do not pass go, and do not collect fucking $200. Do yourself a favor, stay out of sight, keep your fucking mouth closed, and just seriously, fuck off. I'll go home and get your fucking shine box. In his remarkable and steady inauguration address, Joe Biden provided for us a glimpse of the president we need at this particular moment in time. Reminding us that politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its path. Biden delivered a pain to decency and unity, issued a defense of truth over lies, and vowed to turn the page on this ugly chapter in U.S. history. The will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded, Biden said. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, and at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. So now... On this hallowed ground, where just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries. A looming sense of history dominated Wednesday's proceedings, particularly as Kamala Harris shattered one of the highest barriers in American politics and became the first woman and first black and first South Asian American to ascend to the vice presidency. Her swearing in was an extraordinary and long overdue moment, the emotion and gravity of which hung thick in the air as she was administered the oath of office by the Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Unfortunately, these moments of grace and political transcendence were juxtaposed against the city under siege with some 25,000 active duty troops guarding Washington, D.C. from threats of extremist violence. Just two weeks prior, the Capitol was rolling with violence and chaos incited by the President of the United States. While Trump has been impeached for his actions by Congress, his Senate trial awaits and threatens to overshadow and potentially derail Biden's early efforts to get the nation back on track. That said, Trump must be held accountable. To not try him in the Senate because it is inconvenient would be unconscionable. The trial is about setting a precedent for future generations and sending a message to future Donald Trumps. Otherwise, we run the risk of this happening again, sooner rather than later. Trump remains extraordinarily popular within his larger MAGA movement, and despite his deep unpopularity nationally, still commands the loyalty of a wide swath of the electorate. 
That's a long way of saying that these fucking imbeciles will vote for him again, even after what happened on January 6th, unless we prevent that from happening. Which means Donald Trump must be impeached. A goodbye. We love you. We will be back in some form. Earlier this week, fucking Mitch McConnell was doing the same political calculus when he delivered his most forceful condemnation of Donald Trump to date, placing the blame for inciting insurrection squarely on the former president's shoulders. Again, McConnell is not doing this out of a sense of moral obligation. It is about power and his desire to purge Trump from the GOP. To do so requires 17 GOP senators to vote alongside all 50 Democrats. While many have made their intent to impeach well known, there are many others who are waiting to see which way the wind blows. But conventional wisdom says whichever way McConnell goes, so does the Senate. So again, we must hold our breath and wait for justice to be served. So I think it really boils down to what's the defense that the president is going to is going to make. And if it's Rudy Giuliani's defense, I think there's a, it raises the likelihood of more than 17 Republicans voting for conviction. Trump's final action as president was to issue forth a slew of corrupt and shady pardons, some 143 in total. A majority were either for cronies like Steve Bannon, who had been under indictment for embezzlement, to the rapper Lil Wayne and former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, who had been serving a 20-year sentence. And another celebrity hoping to be on the list of pardons, Tiger King star Joe Exotic. His team has been lobbying the White House for several months now, and they appear to be confident he'll make the list because they already have a limousine standing by to pick him up from prison. This follows on the heels of a New York Times report about former Trump lawyers and officials creating a cottage industry selling both pardons and the promise of pardons for tens of thousands of dollars. Two people, though, remain conspicuously absent from this final pardon list, Rudy Giuliani and the president himself. What a world he left us. What a fucking world. As the Biden administration prepares to inherit the worst health crisis in the last century, CNN is learning there is anxiety brewing among his coronavirus advisors, stemming from a concern of the lack of cooperation and transparency from the outgoing Trump team. We were quite surprised last Friday when we learned that, in fact, there weren't these extra doses of vaccine being held back for a second dose. Something that significant, only to find out last Friday, makes you very concerned that there's still more to be learned that you don't know that is going to create a real challenge as we go forward over the weeks ahead. And now for the main event. The coming days and weeks will rightfully focus on the incoming Biden administration and its passage of a proposed $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus package. In addition, come the executive orders, which are the hallmarks of every incoming president. Biden intends to dismantle many of the most divisive and ugly of Trump's policies right away. And the first order I'm going to be signing here is relates to uh, um, COVID, and uh, it's requiring, as I said all along, um, where, where I have authority, mandating masks be worn, social distancing be kept on federal property, on interstate commerce, etc. That said, while President Biden, God, it feels good to say that, 
President Biden attempts to rinse the stain of Trumpism off the nation and move us forward on a more righteous path, healing our divisions and repairing our tarnished reputation abroad. The reckoning for Donald Trump has just begun. He leaves office in precarious financial stability, with hundreds of millions of dollars in loans about to come due. Banks have cut him off and corporate America has turned its back on him, canceling contracts with the Trump Organization worth tens of millions of dollars annually. That Trump winds up bankrupt and behind bars is a moral imperative for a man who has caused so much pain and destruction. Now it's over and the bill has come due. Helping me tabulate what the president owes and to whom is my next guest, the New York Times financial editor, David Enreich. His work in publishing Trump's tax information was a journalistic triumph that helped puncture the Trump myth and connect the dots towards his looming debts and myriad conflicts of interest. In addition, Enrich was the author of Dark Tower, an explosive expose of financial reporting which illustrated, in painstaking detail, the criminality and deceptive practices at work within Trump's lender of last resort, Deutsche Bank. Even before Trump and Deutsche found themselves in an unholy marriage, the bank was manipulating markets, violating international sanctions to aid terrorist regimes, scamming investors, defrauding regulators, and laundering money for Russian oligarchs. So much is wrapped up in this relationship that we still know only a fraction of the truth. So let's now listen to that conversation. All right, so I'm here with David Enrich, and... Um, like with most of my shows, I just got to jump right into it because we only have a little over an hour and we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Our country is fucked up, to say the least. So, David, let's just jump straight into it. In your landmark book, which, by the way, I read while I was in prison, you know, that was really nice of people also. They had sent me a ton of books, people who were supporters. They would just shoot me books. And obviously, when you really have nothing to do, all you do is you just read. I think in the year, I read 78 books, one of which was yours, Dark Towers, which I truly enjoyed. And for me, what was interesting was the fact that I knew so many of the names and so much of that information just rang home to my decade being with Donald Trump. But in your landmark book, Dark Towers, you write extensively about the relationship between Deutsche Bank and Donald Trump. In short, it was his lifeline. Please explain to my listeners what has happened to that lifeline recently and what it means for the president, for Deutsche Bank, to have now cut ties with him permanently. Yeah, well, that lifeline, which has kept him afloat uh, for the better part of two decades, has been not entirely severed, but like it's on, it's just like a, a few kind of strands still connecting it. And, it uh, and basically, Deutsche Bank over the past 20 years lent Trump and his company more than two and a half billion dollars. Uh, and it, currently Trump owes the bank about $330 million, which is due in the next few years. And the bank recently, I mean, I think this decision was coming for quite some time, but the bank has fairly recently decided definitively that this is it. They are not going to lend Donald Trump or his company or his family any more money. And that seems a little bit obvious, maybe, but it's important to keep in mind that he, as I said, has hundreds of millions of dollars of debt coming due in the next few years. And it's very unclear where he's going to get the money 
to repay that debt. And in a normal situation with a normal borrower and a normal lender, one very you know foreseeable scenario would be that the bank would just agree to essentially refinance that loan, maybe make them pay a slightly higher interest rate or something like that, but basically extend the loan in perpetuity. And that's clearly not going to happen here, which means that in the next few years, Trump is going to need to come up with hundreds of millions of dollars and his businesses are struggling. And so it's very, he's going to need to get that money somewhere. And I don't know where that place. Well, one be. place that we certainly know is he's raised $240 million from his GOP supporters. Now, what he did is he kind of copied what he believed the Clinton Foundation was all about, that he would be able to determine whatever he thought that the use would be for that money, so long as a certain percentage um, goes to Republican candidates or whatever his documents specifically say. I, I, I'm forgetting at this particular moment. But I truly believe that he intends on using a big portion of that $240 million to pay down the $330 million that he owes. That's not really Donald Trump's biggest problem, in my estimation. His biggest problem, I believe, is going to be when the DA, Cy Vance, gets a hold of his tax returns, which has now been authorized by the court, and they start to shred through all of his tax implications, that he ends up with several hundred million dollars of a tax liability, couple that with the fraud tax, the tax fraud penalty, and he's going to owe more than 500 plus million dollars in my estimation over, you know, um, as a result of these penalties. I do want to talk to you about, because in the book, obviously you mentioned his lifeline contact over at um, Deutsche Bank, Rosemary Vrablick. And recently you may have seen that she actually resigned from Deutsche Bank. What do you know about that? Did she resign? Was she fired? Um, do you know anything about the relationship, how it started, how it continued? Share with my listeners. Yeah, I, and I'm, I, I have been obsessing about Rosemary Vrablick for about four years now, um, and she's kind of been my great white whale. Uh, so the story, my understanding of the story is that back in, around uh, 2011, Trump was looking for money to, first of all, pay back some money they stole at Deutsche Bank, but also to buy uh, the Doral Golf Resort down in Miami as well as be able to purchase other things. And he was at this point pretty well frozen out of the banking system because he had defaulted so many times. And he was also developing a well-earned reputation for racist demagogy at that point. And Obama was president and Trump was the one pushing the uh, racist conspiracy theory that Obama wasn't naturally born. And so this made him even more of a pariah on Wall Street and in mainstream financial institutions. and But he needed to borrow money and where would he go? So it, it just so happened that his daughter, Ivanka Trump, had recently married Jared Kushner. And the Kushner family had a longstanding relationship with Rosemary Vrablick, who at the time was one of the leading bankers to the kind of ultra wealthy community in New York and the kind of the Northeastern United States. And the Kushners had known Vrablick back when she was at Bank of America, I believe. And, and then she had joined Deutsche Bank in 2006. And so uh, Jared and Ivanka get married. And Jared, in 2011, makes the introduction of his father-in-law, Donald Trump, 
to Rosemary Vrablic. And Vrablic at that point is at Deutsche Bank. And the bank, it's obviously a German bank, and it had spent the past 15 years or so really trying to develop a name for itself in the United States. And one of the ways it was doing that was it was accepting risks and risky clients that really were not acceptable to other banks. And so Rosemary Vrablic uh, and her team and her boss met with Trump. Um, I don't know. Maybe they met with you, oh, too. Oh, I was there. Uh, and I was it, there. Yeah. So I would love to hear your version of this. This is one of the reasons I've been so excited to talk to you is that uh, I, you and I have never spoken before, uh, obviously. But there's um, I, I think you were in the room on a lot of the stuff that I've been kind of fantasizing about for the past several years. Uh, but my understanding is that Vrablic uh, fairly quickly took a look at the um, some of the financial information that the Trump organization provided, and they made a decision that this was a risk they were worth taking, especially if they got Trump to uh, make a personal guarantee of the loans. In other words, saying that if he were to default on these loans in the future, he would, uh, the, the bank would have recourse to some of his personal assets. And so that was the beginning of a kind of the final chapter of the Deutsche Bank Donald Trump relationship in 2011, 2012, that led to uh, I think $340 million of loans being made over a several year period. And, but I would love, I mean, I, you're supposed to be asking me the questions, but I would love to just flip that around and have you, I would love to hear your kind of inside the room story about how that actually went down. Sure. Well, let me ask you this question because you stated that uh, Mayor Rosemary came from Bank of America. Was it Bank of America or City? I, I, I was, I, I'm always, I think it was City, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I mean, she had been at a bunch of different, she had been at Bank of America, but I think you're right, actually. It was, she was at Bank of America and then at City. Um, so thank you for correcting that. So, so the story that was told to me while I met Rosemary for the very first time, uh, how Donald described their relationship was in the 90s when he was going through his bankruptcies and he was really in serious financial trouble. All the banks were closing in on him. And for some unknown reason, and he was never able to explain it, nor would she, she really came out and she protected him. And she was the one that got all of the hmm. banks to start taking discounts and giving him the extensions, allowing him the half a million dollars a month in order for living expenses, basically the concept of too big to fail, right? Even though he was obviously not too big to fail. And in exchange, yep. when she ultimately went to Deutsche Bank, he expressed to me that he had given her $10 million on account at Deutsche Bank, basically to get her started there. And ever since, he claims that they had a incredible relationship that now that he doesn't need any money from anyone, everybody keeps coming to him. They want to loan him money that, you know, they're basically giving it to him at interest free rates and so on. And obviously, you know, those of us that were sitting in the room are rolling our fucking eyes because, right, everybody doesn't want to give him money, right? We knew that he, when you sit with Trump and he lies, you just basically have to accept the lie because if you're not going to accept that lie, you're just going to get into an argument with him and it's just not worth it. And in those days too, remember, the Trump organization is a microcosm of the real estate industry just in New York alone. I mean, he doesn't compare in size to the Zeckendorfs, to the Lafracs, to the, you know, uh, to the various other large, um, 
you know, um, developers. He really has, he's developed what, two or three buildings in the city, right? In his entire, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the last decade. So, you know, um, that's how I always understood that relationship uh, started. But I sat with Trump and Rosemary and Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, along with um, half a dozen other people, because Trump likes to put on the show, right? When she would come in, he would talk about, we would bring the personal financial statements, which show that he's worth like $9.2 billion. We needed to borrow money to put in a bid for the Buffalo Bills. And that bid, um, obviously we lost, we lost by like 600 million to Terry Pagula, who ended up buying it. But we put in a bid and it was Deutsche Bank that was going to provide him. Because you know, the rules of the NFL is you can't have more than like 10 or 20% of the team um, collateralized. Uh, Well, they don't care if you collateralize it, but you can't have debt of more than say 20% on the team. what do you think that Rosemary knows about Trump that's damaging? Because help me to unpack, you know, this relationship as I just described it to the listeners. Uh, and where where do you think that this ends in terms of litigation? What's being looked at by the attorney general, by the DA, and by various other law enforcement agencies? Yeah, well, there's. I mean, that's a tricky question. I mean, there's so much that we still do not know, or at least that I still do not know, and. It, and I think it's worth to, I kind of didn't even fully answer your question about Brad, like I'm now recalling. And the thing that's worth keeping in mind about her departure from Deutsche Bank is that she's leaving under a bit of a cloud. And back over the summer, last summer, uh, we reported in the Times that she in a, she and a couple of her colleagues several years ago had purchased a uh, an apartment in a building on Park Avenue um, and it was kind of a weird situation. It wasn't, she didn't spend that much money on it, but it was done through an LLC with two of her Deutsche Bank subordinates who happened to be family members. And, um, and the thing that, you know, I had noticed this a long time ago and didn't really know what to make of it, but my colleague, Jesse Drucker, realized when going through Kushner's latest financial disclosure form over the summer, that the company that Rosemary and her colleagues had bought this from was actually owned in part by Jared Kushner. And so this, and we went to Deutsche Bank and asked them about this, and they started an internal investigation into potential conflicts of interest in with Vrablik's relationship with the Kushners. And all I know, uh, because again, you're not re- a normal bank policy would be that you should not, the private banker to a wealthy client should not normally be doing personal business deals with that client. Um, and so what I know is that the bank launched an internal investigation that went on for the better part of six months, I think. And it, we don't know what the results of that investigation were. What we do know is that Vrablik and her colleague who'd been in this deal with her both resigned at, effective at the end of last year. And so I don't know if there is more, you know, talking about legal exposure, it's not impossible that that has created an issue for Vrablik and or for Deutsche Bank and or for Kushner. I, I don't I don't know that to be the case, but it's not impossible. Um, but she, in terms of the secrets she has and what she knows about Trump, I mean, she has spent the you know better part of the decade getting to know his finances and getting to know him, you know, just about as well as anyone on the planet. And for a person who has been so secretive about his finances and where he's making money, who he's partnering with, 
what he's paying in taxes, things like that. And Vrablic has possibly the best visibility into that of anyone outside of the Trump family or the Trump organization. And, you know, she, I want to be clear, I have no reason to think that Vrablic has actually done anything wrong legally, but I can imagine that if, it's hard for me to imagine that prosecutors or regulators or any other authority would be investigating Trump's finances and trying to get a window into Deutsche Bank without talking to her. And so I think she has a big target on her back, not in terms of criminal liability, but in terms of just like she is a high value person to be talking to. Yeah, I don't think that she's going to be able to get away as scot-free and that she's as innocent as you may believe, because there's one thing you may know. I don't believe Donald Trump ever gave to um, Deutsche Bank, at least I never saw it, tax returns. I know he gave them the personal financial statement that was prepared by Weiser, but I can assure you that I never saw the tax returns being given and basically what he would claim, like we did for the Buffalo Bills. I'm really rich. I'm really, I'm worth nine plus billion. I'm, I'm, I'm actually more liquid than Deutsche Bank. I mean, this is the shit that the guy used to say. I'm more, I'm more liquid than you guys. And they should accept his personal guarantee in exchange for the loan, which of course would be of course collateralized with the various different Trump properties, which were of course all overinflated, which is what both the DA and the attorney general are looking at. But, you know, one of the interesting things that we had done, uh, Donald actually thought of this on his own when he got into financial trouble with the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. One of the things he did is he created a lawsuit that has never been brought before in not just forget in Chicago, but anywhere. He termed it an economic force majeure. That as a result of the economy, that he was unable to pay the banks as well as predominantly the bondholders. And he ended up buying out the, the bonds, the notes, with the help of Steve Mnuchin and others. He ended up buying that out for like 25 cents on the dollar, then ultimately held on to it. And the market, as we all know, rebounded and rebounded you know, very, very strongly. And so he ended up taking what would have been like a quarter of a billion dollar loss and making it into a quarter of a billion dollar gain, right? All at the expense of the bondholders and so on. Um, So I wouldn't be shocked to see him try. Now, again, it's a very different Donald Trump. It's a different Trump organization. I don't believe the Trump organization survives, to be honest with you. I believe as a result of the DA and the AG and everything that's going on now in Washington with the pick and um, and the various different civil litigations that are going to now um, emanate from this um, insurrection, I don't think the Trump organization survives. Right now, as we know, Donald and Melania moving to Mar-a-Lago or one of the three houses that he owns in the area. Of course, he puts the address for Mar-a-Lago because it's an impressive property. The others are very nice, don't get me wrong, but it's not Mar-a-Lago, right? And he's got the image to uphold. Ivanka is now moving to Indian Creek down in Miami. Tiffany just claimed that she's moving down to Miami as well after law school. And Don Jr. just announced he's going to move to Jupiter. So my feeling is, Hmm. All we need to do in New York is get rid of Eric Trump, and New York has rid itself of the Trump trash. And I'd like to take a lot of credit 
for that. So once we get rid of Eric Trump, I guarantee you that the whole Trump organization ends up falling apart because all of their assets are going to become, you know, um, probably auctioned off. But let me let me just move on for a second, you know, because Deutsche, obviously, since we're on that topic, they're sitting on reams and reams of evidence along with a company called Ladder Capital. Do you think in this environment that they're going to start spilling the beans on the president and cooperating in a way that they hadn't before? And do you do you foresee more witnesses with access to sensitive Trump information willing to leak those documents either to the press uh, or uh, authorities now that he's in a very weakened state and seen more as a pariah than he has ever been before? Man, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I love people leaking stuff. Uh, and I agree that there is, between leaving office and being under all this legal pressure, and even just the simple fact of not having a Twitter account anymore, I and mean, Trump seems kind of emasculated right now. And I can imagine, in situations like that, people who are kind of were on the fence about providing information or leaking stuff, to the media or to investigators, you know, I think in general are more likely to do that. And I think as far as Deutsche Bank is concerned, it's kind of interesting. I mean, they have been maintaining this public stance for the past several years now where they say, look, our hands are tied under German bank secrecy laws. We simply are not legally permitted to disclose information about our clients to anyone absent a subpoena or other kind of legitimate uh, legal order. And at the same time, what we've seen in the past couple of weeks from all sorts of companies is that they are scrambling to create as much distance as they can from Trump and even doing things that at least on their face appear to be possible violations of contracts with Trump. And like what the PGA did, canceling the, uh, the tournament next year at his New Jersey golf course. And it, um, and yet Deutsche Bank, while kind of saying, while signaling to people that it's not going to do business with him in the future, it actually has not really done a whole lot in terms of changing its stance about what it's going to say publicly or what it's going to provide to authorities, as far as I can tell. And they, they've been very much on the sidelines for the past few years, even as investigators in Congress and the Manhattan DA and the New York Attorney General have been investigating and they have been waiting to hand over all this information to investigators until the subpoenas that were issued kind of wind their way through this never ending legal battle that, and look, the Trumps are very good at using the American legal system to their advantage to prevent, basically to avoid having to pay their debts or to essentially prevent information from becoming public. And so they have wielded lawsuits in these investigations to great effect, basically making it impossible for any of the investigators to get their hands on anything, whether it's his tax returns or all the financial information Deutsche Bank has about him. To me, the, the great secret that is hiding inside Deutsche Bank is less about Trump's finances than it is about the internal communication at the bank about concerns that I know some employees had about potentially improper activity going on in the Trump and Kushner bank accounts. And there was an episode back in 2016 and 2017 where some of the anti-money laundering officers at the bank down in Florida detected what they viewed as suspicious transactions moving in and out of the Trump and Kushner accounts. 
And they flagged those concerns to their superiors. What they thought should happen is that there should be a suspicious activity report filed with the U.S. Treasury Department, kind of alerting them to potential financial crimes. And they they prepared these reports, and then their their superiors killed the reports, basically saying, "There's nothing to see here. Let's not do it." And and one of the employees who I've spoken with and written about is, and she was ultimately fired for complaining about this too much. And it. We still don't know a whole lot about exactly what she saw, but that's the kind of thing that if these subpoenas that Congress, among others, have issued, if they're enforced, Deutsche Bank has to hand over the underlying information in the suspicious activity reports and any internal communication about them. And to me, that, look, we already know that Trump is not a good businessman. His businesses are struggling. He has played all sorts of games, uh, it appears, with his taxes over the decades. What we haven't seen is any evidence of really like financial connections with the Russians or real outright criminality. And talking to some of the people inside Deutsche Bank, they have a suspicion that there is something there. And my hunch is that if if investigators got unfettered access to all the information Deutsche Bank is sitting on, that it could be quite revelatory in that regard. Yeah. And what bothers me the most is that Here you have suspicious activity coming in from foreign sources into both Kushner as well as the Trump accounts. And yet mine managed to be stolen by some piece of shit that works in San Francisco with the IRS. This Jonathan Fry goes on to the FinCEN system. Not only does he download my banking information, but two other Michael Cohens, one from Canada and one from Israel, passes it along to Michael Avenatti, who passes it along to Ronan Farrow, and the guy ends up getting probation. He right, he ends up, And the funny thing is, what was my suspicious activity? I sent $130,000 from First Republic Bank to City National Bank in California, to an, a lawyer's IOLA account in Beverly Hills, California. I mean, it bothers me that Trump and Kushner, because of the attorney general, because of the power that he's been wielding as president, that they've managed to, as you say, subvert their legal responsibilities. But I can promise you one thing. Now that the Democrats control the House, control the Senate, and control the White House, the attorney general, God willing, I hope to God it's going to be Merrick Garland. They're not going to put up with the Deutsche Bank bullshit. They're not going to put up with the Kushner family bullshit. They're certainly going after Donald Trump for all of the various crimes that he's committed. And I think we're going to start to see a multitude of volumes of documents, whether it's from uh, companies like Deutsche Bank, like um, Ladder Capital. And that's another thing that we're going to start talking about. So Ladder Capital, as you know, is one of only, what, two or three different institutions that loaned Donald Trump money over the course of the years. Now, something we also know about Ladder Capital is that the son um, of Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump Organization, works at Ladder Capital. I would love to see whether Ladder Capital followed the proper protocol in terms of making loans, or was it simply daddy, right, telling son, don't worry about it, we'll give you personal guarantees, because Ladder Capital does not have a great market cap. I mean, they're certainly not City, they're not Deutsche, they're not any of these large institutions that make these type of loans. They're a very, they're a a smaller, you know, mid-cap type of firm that, in all fairness, would not be able to handle 
a Donald Trump type of account, not when you're asking for a billion dollars in order to buy the Buffalo Bills. I don't think their market cap is a billion. What do you know about ladder capital and that relationship, if anything? To be blunt, I don't know enough about ladder capital. Like I, they have been on, basically I know everything you just said and it, uh, I am fascinated by them and extremely puzzled by them. There is just not much transparency into them. And it, as you said, it's a small, it's a relatively small institution, which has made it, I think, for many journalists, certainly myself included, much harder to penetrate. It's much more, um, you know, it's not the, t- one of the great things about reporting on Deutsche Bank over the years has been that, you know, there have been at various points, well over 100,000 employees there. And the place is so dysfunctional and just so messed up that most of the people who leave Deutsche Bank do so with a fairly bitter taste in their mouth. And for as a journalist, that makes it much easier to find sources and get them to talk to you and get them to kind of spill the beans. Ladder, again, this is speaking for myself, I have not had the ability to penetrate it in anything like the same way that I got inside Deutsche Bank. And in part, that's a fact that I haven't actually tried that hard, but all, but I mean, it's also just a much smaller institution and it has not, it's just been kind of this enigma the entire time of his presidency. And I think it is one of the big kind of blank spaces in our collective knowledge about Trump's finances is what has been going on with ladder capital all these years. And um, to my knowledge, they have not been subpoenaed by various investigators, which I find surprising. Um, but I agree, there is a lot, they've lent him a, a tremendous amount of money over the years, especially considering Ladder's relatively small size and the family connections that, and the, you know, what, what, what outsiders might see as a conflict of interest begs for more information and more disclosure. And to be honest, I'm not sure we're going to get it though. Like there, it's not with, especially with Trump leaving office, there is a, I think it may, it's a harder case for Congress to make that they have the right to investigate this random financial institution. Um, but that being said, I I think it's crying out for more investigation and yeah, more Yeah, I think that investigation is on its way or that they're cooperating, which is why you're not probably seeing anything. Oh, that may be. That's a good point. Do you think that there are threads being investigated or do you know of any threads being investigated uh, or beginning to emerge that show how the rioters were supported financially and how the event itself was underwritten and from whom? That's a very good question. And the short answer is no. I, what I can tell you is that that is something that it's a question that's occurred to us at the New York times and people are looking into it. It's, but it's a very hard, that's a very hard thing to figure out, right? Because the, this is, to a large extent, a collection of random individuals who uh, are, who gathered. And it's not like they're, I mean, the obvious place to be looking is stop the steal, right? Because they are the, the closest thing there is to a really coherent organization, I think. And, but again, the bottom line, before I like say things I shouldn't say, is that I actually don't know. And I, but it, it's a very good question to be asking. And I, I'm eager to hear the answer. I would bet it's not Deutsche Bank. 
Well, David, listen, I have to ask you these questions. I mean, that's why I'm fortunate enough to have the great David Enrich, you know, here on, you know, Maya Culpa podcast. Oh, ask, <laughs> ask away, ask away. I just, when I don't know the answer, I will, I'll, I try to say that I don't know the answer rather than just bullshitting you. Yeah, so. fair enough. I, what I believe is ultimately is more and more people start being um, found and uh, indicted by the FBI and law enforcement for their participation. All it takes is one person to turn around to leak out and say, hey, this shit was funded by the RNC. This was funded by the Trump campaign. This was funded by Don Trump Jr., right? Or, you know, or mm -hmm. Jared or Ivanka or whoever. And that's where those investigations will start. You're right. At this moment, that has not happened as of yet, but I suspect that it will. I also believe wholeheartedly that one of the reasons, and I've talked a lot about this, that Trump has fought so hard to overturn this election is so that he could maintain his executive privilege and the custom of not allowing the indictment of a sitting president. With now him being removed, the investigations that are happening on a state and local level will now proceed with much more speed and focus towards an indictment. Talk to me about this. Well, and there is obviously the main, uh, in fact, the only criminal investigation that I'm aware of is the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. And I think from what we have heard, they that investigation has been proceeding with some vigor, except for the fact that their efforts to get Trump's underlying financial information have been thwarted by uh, Trump's legal maneuvering. And so... And for example, we know that there have been employees of some financial institutions, including Aon, the insurance brokerage, that have been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury that was convened. And the, um, but to, to give an example of how kind of how early that investigation remains, I and mean, Deutsche Bank employees have been brought over to Cy Vance's office to um, to talk with the investigators, but they've done so. First of all, it has not been to a grand jury. It has not been under subpoena. And it's not even been about Donald Trump. They the, the conversations are so preliminary still that they have been, and this is recently, this is since the election. So in the past couple of months, they've been interviewing Deutsche Bank employees simply about their general procedures and practices and how they would handle kind of theoretical situations. And I mean, I don't know that the word Trump has never been uttered in those meetings, but they've certainly not been about Trump. And and that's because there hasn't been a subpoena issued and Deutsche Bank's view is that they cannot provide any information about a client absent a subpoena or other court order. And so I think it's, look, I mean, there is a lot of suspicion and a lot of smoke swirling about Trump's finances and whether there was criminal misconduct there. But the bottom line is we don't know that. And we don't know uh what would be prosecutable we don't we we do know that they're looking at bank fraud allegations and i think that stems in part at least from what you have said publicly in congress back in 2019 uh but there is it's not clear exactly how those would be prosecuted it's not clear if a crime was committed and also even if a crime was committed it's not clear that just for political or other reasons that there would be charges brought and um, so I think, I mean, I, I, every time I like tweet something about Deutsche Bank and Trump, I get inundated with responses from 
people with like little blue wave icons next to their names saying he's going to jail for this. And like, I don't know, that's, I think people on the left might be getting like a little bit ahead of their, themselves here. This is a country of laws generally. And uh, while things may be very distasteful and smell kind of bad, that's not the same thing necessarily as provable criminal misconduct. And I think the last thing that someone ambitious and savvy like Cy Vance or uh, Letitia James, who's the New York Attorney General, would want is to bring kind of a half-baked case against Trump and then lose. I mean, that would be, I think, quite embarrassing and it, it, it could have the effect of in some ways propping Trump up, which is obviously, these are his, these are people that do definitely not want to be propping Trump up. And so I, I think they'll be probably quite careful in only bringing a case if they think they're most likely yeah. going and to win. And I will just share with you um, some information that obviously I'm aware of and I'm involved in, as you may be knowledgeable of, the DA's office came and visited me when I was at Otisville on three separate occasions. And that, of course, was in furtherance of obtaining information on various different topics. There are 10 topics in total that, if I if my number is correct, it's either 9, 10, 11, something like that, that Cy Vance's office are looking at, and they all relate to Donald Trump. They relate to his children. Uh, some relate even to Kushner. Um, what, and wait, that's, that's fascinating. I want to hear more about um, that. Without going into the specific topics, um, even since I have been released from my second unconstitutional remand by Donald Trump and Bill Barr, uh, along with, you know, the RRM at MDC, this guy, Patrick McFarland and the DOC over at, um, here at Pearl street. What I can tell you is I have spoken on a handful of occasions with the DA's office. And I will tell you emphatically that the information that they have and the information that they're pursuing are criminal. And you're right, they're taking the case slow at the moment, but not because that they don't have an ironclad case against him. They're taking it slow because as we both discussed, and as you know well, you cannot indict a sitting president. So Cy Vance is being very strategic. His office which is compromised of real talent. Um, they have an inordinate amount of information already provided to them, obtained over the course of the last two years since they've really started jumping into this um, investigation post my House Oversight Committee hearing. Uh, I do predict that shortly after um, the 20th that you will start to see um, subpoenas and indictments coming out of that office. And you're right, Cy Vance is not going to make a mistake, not on this one. It's too important, not just to his career, but really to the United States of America. Can I, I'm sorry to do this because I'm just a reporter and I can't help myself, but can I, can I just ask you a question? I love it. You, you ask away. <laughs> thank you, you ask thank away, you. David. So they're asking you questions primarily related to kind of the representations that you and the Trump org made to Deutsche Bank as you sought loans. Is that that's, right? That's part of it. Correct. What's the other part? And then even further, and even further, I mean, it, it legitimately goes, I mean, there are 10 topics that they have gone through, uh, including with ladder capital. Uh, as well as, you know, properties that Donald Trump owns, um, personal financial statements, how they were used, valuations on taxes and so on. They have 
as far as I'm concerned, and this is not my specialty area of law, but I certainly know when something smells like a crime, feels like a crime, that it probably is a crime, and you're capable of being indicted on criminality. I believe that Cy Vance knows exactly what he's doing, and the people that are working for him that are involved in this investigation are very well armed and ready to go. So interesting. You'll be you're gonna be busy writing. Trust me on that one. I hope so. I, I, I like good stories. Yeah, that I'm sure. But beyond the Deutsche Bank um and their cutting of ties with Trump, have you heard from sources about the Trump organization and who else is backing away from them? You know, not beyond what we have written or I've read in other news organizations. I mean, and the list is seems to be growing every day. I mean, this uh the PGA is obviously one of the biggest examples we've written about Deutsche Bank and Signature Bank, where Trump had a, a couple of very large accounts and that had been a, the bank of choice for the Kushner family for uh, many years. They've said that they are closing Trump's accounts and, in fact, called for Trump to resign last week. By the way, are you aware that are you aware that Ivanka sat on the board? I know it's incredible. They uh, she sat on the board at the same or around the same time that they were making big loans to the Kushner family, and uh, and and that they were providing. Uh, I mean, they they lent money to you, didn't they? Signature that Bank. Was? No, yeah. I, I I opened an account. Um, oh, okay, and left it there because Ivanka, when she went on the board, asked me to put money into the bank, which I did in just a uh, in a money market, and I basically didn't touch it for even after she had left. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, that that is a relationship that is really uh, fascinating. We've written about that a bit at the Times, and it's it was especially interesting to me last week, to see, or maybe it was earlier this week, I can't even, I've lost track of time, but the, um, you know, that is a bank that has been so loyal to the Trump and Kushner families for for quite a long time, so much so that Ivanka was on the board. And so it's fascinating to see that they broke so publicly with the president. And I think that's representative of what is happening a lot in public right now with other financial institutions and other companies, but also probably even more so what's happening behind the scenes where there are companies that have done business with the Trumps or the Trump organization over the years that do not want to create a lot of publicity here, but want to be able to kind of privately tell people that they are not in business with them anymore. And I, I think, you know, there, Trump has a lot of, the Trump organization has a lot of corporate relationships in, and look at Vornado where they, which is through partnerships, they own huge buildings in a couple of cities. And there are, there are a lot of relationships like that, that I think my hunch is that the conversations are quite fraught and there's a lot more there than is, has become public so far. And that's why I say that the Trump organization is in serious trouble and will potentially be closing down, which means that Donald um, and his grifting children will have to find, um, you know, a new type of business in order to try to get into like this Trump news network that I constantly talk about. For example, New York City, Bill de Blasio has just announced that they're taking Wolman Rink mm -hmm. from the Trump organization who manage it, as well as Lasker Rink, which is at 110 Central Park North, the Carousel in Central Park, the Ferry Point project, the golf project in Yonkers, 
And I believe that there's um, one additional. I just um, can't think of it off the top of my head that they're going to. Now, by the way, something which is interesting as well, and I'm not sure how this plays out, but many people don't realize that the public space inside of Trump Tower, where they have the restaurant and they have the ice cream parlor and the snack bar and so mm -hmm. on. Donald Trump does not own that. That's owned by you and me, the taxpayers of New York, which is why it says open to the public. Mm -hmm. Now, he's responsible to maintain it. He received, he gave up that space so that he could build the 62 stories for 725 Fifth Avenue, the residential property. He does not own that. I wonder if that area, that public space, can now be taken from him and operated by some other you know, management company as opposed to him, which I think would be an interesting play by the city as well. But not only did the city do this, one of Donald's longest running relationships is with the brokerage house of Aon. Yep. Aon provided him insurance going way, way back um, to you know his acquisition and before of even Mar-a-Lago, where they underwrote all of the insurance for all of the various different entities. I understand that they just broke away from him as well uh, yesterday, which now creates a problem for the various buildings under Trump management because they're no longer going to be able to pool all of these buildings together. And we're going to have to start doing it on an individual and separate basis. I don't know if Trump organization is going to cease to exist, but I totally agree with you that they have very severe financial problems that are going, and it's not simply that their companies, that their properties are not making that much money or that they have these big debts or that they might have a, a huge tax bill retroactively. And it's, it's what you're saying, that there are, as kind of the infrastructure of modern businesses pulls away from them, it's going to be much, much harder and more cumbersome and more expensive for them to operate as an effective business. And so I, I completely agree with you that there are, this is, it is going to be much harder and less profitable for them to operate a lot of this stuff. And, and it makes me wonder whether the solution that they will find is to just sell a lot. And that would solve the problem of a, uh, you know, just a lot of the businesses pulling away from them. It would help raise cash to pay down debts uh, to banks and or to tax authorities if if that's owed. And it would help maybe take them out of the public eye a little bit because and I do think for much of America, Trump is going to be pretty radioactive. And you're obviously he does have a core of very uh, kind of loyal supporters, but that is, I doubt that's going to be enough to kind of maintain the current business setup that he has. Yeah, I'm not sure you could really make that much money selling hats and and yeah. uh, flags with Trump name onto it. They already have one. I'm not sure, you know, they, 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 they're not Trump purchasers of product mm -hmm. unless he's going to go back into the Trump hot dog business. But David, on January 7th, after the riots had dissipated and businesses had already begun cutting ties with Donald Trump and his companies, you tweeted a reminder that Donald had $330 million in loans coming due and will be in need of fresh source of cash to make those payments. So play out the movie for me on this. Say, say Trump doesn't find the cash and can't make the payments. Describe the aftermath for my listeners of what happens, because these are loans of which he is personally liable yeah. upon. 
Do you think yep. he goes the bankruptcy route again? It's a really good question. And I don't know is the short answer. I mean, his options are kind of limited. Uh, if he, if he defaults on those loans, Deutsche Bank has recourse to his personal assets. Now it's not like they can just like, you know, drive up to Trump tower and like take it. There would be a very protracted court battle and it, you know, it would probably take years to work out and who knows how, what the outcome of that would actually be. Um, so Trump, you know, if he determines, he could determine that it's in his interest to declare, to file for bankruptcy protection. And one of the advantages he might have is that, as you know, Trump organization itself is not actually really a thing. It's a, it's an umbrella organization for hundreds of different limited liability corporations. And so the, and to take one example, and the the uh, the Trump Tower in Chicago is a obviously that's owned by or it's a Trump project, but there the debt that he owes on that, which I think is like forty five million dollars right now, which he owes to Deutsche Bank, is not that's housed in one LLC, Trump LLC, and so if he defaulted on the forty five million dollars of debt that he has coming due on that. It would be that LLC, I think, that would just be filing for bankruptcy protection. It wouldn't necessarily be the entirety of Trump organization. And so I think, which is the reason you set up a company, or one of the reasons you set up this kind of rat's nest of LLCs is so that the liability is kind of isolated. And so I think bankruptcy protection would be one option. I mean, another option, the, the problem with that, of course, is that it creates you know, a bit of a public stain on someone who, despite his previous bank runs through bankruptcy protection, has held himself up as a very successful businessman. On the other hand, and I'm just kind of playing this out in my head as we speak, which is never a very smart idea for me to do, but there's, on the other hand, you know, Trump, I think, has become an expert at blaming other people and other institutions for his own failures. And so maybe bankruptcy protection at least for some of these LLCs, would be the simplest route. He could also sell assets to come up with the money. To me, one of the most intriguing and slightly conspiratorial uh, possibilities is that he looks overseas for the money, whether it's from wealthy overseas institutions or individuals. Uh, obviously, he's cultivated relationships during his time in office with leaders of uh, quite a few countries. Well, and let's talk about that before you go on. So, for example, he has with the Kushner relationship with Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah. But remember, now, prior to working for Trump, I actually represented members of the Al Saud family, the royal family in Saudi Arabia. And I can tell you that knowing them as well as I do, Donald Trump is only relevant to them as the president of the United States. They have no interest in dealing with Donald Trump you know, based upon his business acumen. And the second he's out of office, they don't give a fuck about him. Let's be honest, right? They're now working on creating relationships with the Biden administration because they have their own problems to deal with. Iran, uh, Islamic um, extremists, and so on. So they're not going to create a, um, a, a rift in between their kingdom and the Biden administration. They're all about who's in power right now so that they could remain in power. So I think those foreign lenders are not going to be there for him like he well, believes. 
I, yeah, I don't, I mean, I obviously don't know one way or the other. And I agree with you that at least publicly they're the only utility that Trump has to someone like MBS is to the extent that he holds power. But the two kind of counterpoints I would make are that one, uh, even if Trump is not president, he still potentially could be wielding a lot of power, whether it's in kind of the Republican party politics or the possibility that he runs and wins again in the future. That's thing. one thing too, is that I totally agree with you that foreign governments generally are not going to want to alienate the Biden administration by publicly embracing or financing Trump or his operations. But one of the things about international finance, as you know, is that it does not need to be done in public, right? As long as you're using private companies or private individuals, the Trump organization is not a public company. And so it, Deutsche Bank isn't going to care if the money to repay its $330 million in loans comes from Trump or comes from Trump, but originates with MBS or anywhere else, you know? So I don't like, I think the risk of that creating public fallout, again, we're just making things up with Saudi Arabia, but there's, I think the risks of that, it's not necessarily the type of thing that would automatically uh, upset American officials. Now, that being said, I think the first point is more relevant, which is what would MBS get out of that? And I don't know. Yeah, the answer is nothing. But just to talk about, for example, if in fact he does file the Chapter 11 reorganization bankruptcy proceeding, the problem that Trump and the Trump organization have with that is that most of his assets right now are not income producing assets, right? So if mm-hmm. you do file a Chapter 11, that doesn't give him the ability within which to not pay onto the debt. You do have to create a schedule. And the problem is he will not be able to contend with that schedule based upon the income that's being generated from Mm -hmm. these assets. Most of his properties are unrented, like 40 Wall Street. I mean, half the building, to me, from my understanding, is right now vacant. So how do you keep up with the payments pursuant to the Chapter 11 reorganization schedule when you have no income coming in? And I believe this time, I really do, that he has put such a shit stain on the Trump brand that Deutsche Bank or any lender will not fall for the same crap that they did years ago. And now I believe that the boards and the people that are on it are going to end up trying to push the issue in order to take down the company. It's really what I truly believe. I believe that he will have to start selling assets. But then again, here comes the second problem. As he sells those assets, what's his basis in it? Now he's going to have you know, uh, tax implications mm-hmm. onto it that, again, is depleting the money that he's going to need either to pay his IRS tax bill, his fraud, his tax fraud penalties, the $330 million to Deutsche. And by the way, that also does not include the $330 million, as you stated, Vornado, the two properties, 1290 Avenue, the Americas, and the Bank of America building in San Francisco, because I believe that there's like another $500 million of debt on his 30% interest in that. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm not, I've seen that reported. I'm not sure that math is actually right, though. There's, uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that, but but whatever, it doesn't matter. He's in a deep, he, he appears from where I'm sitting and where you're sitting clearly to be in a pretty deep financial hole. And, and it's very unclear how he digs out of that. Yeah, I agree. Now, Trump's legal advisors have also told him that he will likely face serious civil penalties from lawsuits from those who were injured or killed on the day of the riots. 
the so-called O.J. Simpson penalty, I believe is how they term it. I'm curious what you've heard about this and how much of a financial smackdown he's in for in the future based upon this alone. God, I just have no idea. It's not something I mean, I've read the same things you're referring to, but I I don't have any of my own expertise on this. Um, So I, I just don't know. And that's one where I would really just be speculating as like a random person, which is not a smart thing for me to do when we're recording something. (laughs) I do hear you on that. And I respect that. Um, Ironically, on January 5th, just before the Capitol riot, you tweeted out about Gary Cohn's new position at IBM and how it might be a sign that corporate America is happy hiring from the previous Trump administration. Do you think that to be true in the aftermath of January 6th, or does it differ by the individual? Um, you know, because Gary Cohn, after all, did not prop up Trump's election lies, nor did he continue to do so like the Peter Navarro's of the world. Let's let's be honest. I happen to know Gary Cohn. I was the one that asked Gary to join the administration and is probably the one responsible for him going there. Gary Cohn walked away from the Trump administration after one year, like one year and a day, Mm -hmm. simply because, and the comments that he made to me, the guy is fucking crazy. And that no matter anything that he brought to him, which is expertise, right? I mean, Gary is one of the most brilliant guys that that I've met when it comes to finances and the economy. He would tell me that he spoke to Trump, that he would provide him with like memos And Trump would just basically ignore it, and he would just go on what Donald likes to refer to as his gut instinct, which has made him into the success that he purported to be. So I could understand why an IBM would take on a Gary Cohn, but I don't understand how anybody like a Peter Navarro or a Steve Mnuchin or you know any of these other sycophants that stayed there and promoted Trump's stupidity, how they end up getting jobs you know, anywhere else. Yeah, I think it's it's funny. I'd forgotten that I tweeted that right before the riot. I mean, I, obviously the riot and Trump's incitement of that, those protesters was, has made, I think obviously on the margins at least, has made it much harder or will make it much harder for people affiliated with the Trump administration to rehabilitate their images and, and get jobs. I agree with a lot of what you just said about Gary in terms of he, obviously he only served for a relatively short period of time and he came into the administration with a lot of expertise having been a top executive at Goldman. And it, and I, my tweet was not to say that people should not be allowed to go get jobs. It's, it's a, but it, it to me is one of the things I've been kind of curious to see how it plays out because in a normal presidential administration, having worked in a senior level in the White House or in a federal agency would be the ticket to riches. You know, there's this revolving door that spins in a very lucrative fashion for people like that, whether they end up at banks or law firms or other companies. And I think that that revolving door is not going to be spinning nearly as fast uh, this time around, at least not for a while. I mean, our memories all seem to be kind of short. So we'll see, maybe people will, you know, forget about this 10 news cycles from now. But um, it, it'll be an, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I definitely one thing I do think is that, and I this is something I have some 
expertise in is that the media is going to be writing about these appointments and doing it in a much more critical way, I suspect, than has been done in the past. There's always been a little bit of a taint associated, I think, in the in the eyes of the media of people cashing in on their government service. And I think this time around, there's not only going to be that lens that we're viewing it through, but also the lens of, you know, are these corporations or law firms or banks or whatever that are hiring these people, are they somehow kind of giving license to what happened during the Trump administration in terms of the kind of disregard and disrespect for the rule of law and things like that? So I think it's there's there's going to be a lot more media and public scrutiny of this stuff, which presumably, I would guess, will make it less attractive for some of these hirings to happen. But we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm always wrong about this kind of stuff with my predictions. So, you know, that's an important caveat to keep in mind. You know, when you start taking, like, for example, the Steve Millers, the Steve Bannons, the Kelly McEnany's, right? Um, how do they possibly find jobs anywhere, especially like the Steve Bannons, the Steve Millers, who are racist in their belief system. I can't see any company wanting to become involved with any of these individuals simply because, again, of the shit stain on the resume that it states, you know, working for the president. But also on top of that, something I, I don't truly understand, and I actually never understood it. Donald Trump, for some unknown reason, and, you know, as we're winding down, you know, feel free to jump in and ask me your final question as well, because I see you're really itching to do that. But I've never really understood this. Now, I know that Donald Trump has a very keen sense when it comes to manipulating media and when it comes to um, using the media for his own benefit. But I've always found it interesting that Trump has tremendous respect for The New York Times except he also has an enormous animus towards the New York Times. Do you know what that's all about? Do you know where it started? You know, when I um, I joined the Times in uh, 2017, I'd been at the Wall Street Journal for many years. And um, right as I was making the decision to join, I, I met with a bunch of senior people at the Times, which is just kind of standard, like they, you know, to make sure that I'm not a crazy person. And I asked, this was right kind of in the thick of it where Trump was constantly tweeting about Maggie Haberman and the failing New York Times. And I just asked one of the one of these editors, like, what do you make of this? What is going on in Trump's head? And they described it to me in kind of the best way I've heard, which is it's not that profound, really. But it's that, you know, Trump grew up in New York City. The New York Times was one of the kind of hometown papers. It was the voice of the establishment to a large extent. And Trump craved admission into that establishment group. And so and so he he desperately wanted to be viewed favorably in the pages of The New York Times. And when The New York Times did not oblige him with that and was very critical, you know, as The Times would be of any presidential candidate or any president, I think, but especially with him, given how how much he was shattering norms. And I think it stung on a very personal level. And so he and his reaction in those situations, as you personally know, is to lash out and to do so in a very personal way. And uh, so, I mean, I, I don't think it's that complicated. He wanted to be accepted by the establishment. The New York Times is a kind of vivid symbol of that. And when the New York Times would not 
kind of bend to his will, his traditional way of dealing with that kind of stuff is to go on the attack. And but wait, I actually do have another question for you about Deutsche Bank. Can I ask it? You know, but before we do that, you know, let's just finish with New York Times and we'll wrap it up with your question. So you mentioned Maggie Haberman. Now, I know Maggie Haberman for over two decades, and it's amazing how Trump craves her approval. And there was an article that she had written, and I find her to be an absolutely you know, phenomenal journalist uh, with tremendous integrity. And that's just what my findings are. That's my finding, too, for the record. And I remember that she wrote an article that was extremely unflattering. And I believe it was around the time of, you know, Donald Trump's birtherism movement and so on. And he took offense to it, almost as if like um, a rejected boyfriend, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Walking into a bar and seeing your ex-girlfriend with another guy. That's the kind of sort of visceral response that he had. It was a gut-wrenching pain when he was reading that article. And for that, that's when Twitter, he started, you know, on Twitter, he would, of course, start with the failing New York Times and the schlock journalist Maggie Haberman or the has-been Maggie Haberman or whatever other, you know, beautiful terms that this man wants to attack a journalist, you know, with. But then as the campaign started kicking up and he was increasing in the polls, and there was a story that I believe Maggie was um, part of. He then calls me into his office and he asks me, do you still speak to Maggie Haberman? And I responded, I do. So he goes, you do? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Why? So he goes, set up a meeting. I want, I want to talk to her, right? Help me to make the peace. So it's interesting that he goes up and down and up and down yeah. and up and down and so on. And then, of course, the next article was not as flattering because he said another stupid fucking comment. And, you know, he doesn't want to be held responsible for any of the negatives. You turn around and you call, for example, Mexicans, all rapists and drug addicts and drug dealers and murderers. But he qualifies it by saying, but some are good people. The same that he did with the Nazis that were walking, right, um, screaming Jews will not replace us. He wants to still be praised, not for the racist, sexist, misogynist, all the, the hatred that he's spewing, but rather because he said, yeah, but some of them are good people. So he really would like to have seen someone like Maggie with her credentials and her, you know, and her significance with the New York Times writing. Yeah, but he said these things, but what he was really saying is that there are good Mexicans too. And nobody's going to write that. I mean, mm-hmm. his, his understanding for how journalism works is so, it's so insane. The only one that would write something stupid like that would have been the fucking observer because Jared was its owner and self-proclaimed CEO, right? Other than the observer, nobody else would write that Donald's speech on that day when he made his announcement was that was presidential and that of, um, you know, a, an orator. It was fucking garbage. He didn't even have a script. He was just basically rambling on, which he did for about an hour and 25 minutes, unscripted. And Donald Trump unscripted is really dangerous. So go ahead, David, as we wrap this hour up, ask away. 
Okay, here we go. Uh, so the big rumor, as I'm sure you know about Deutsche Bank over the years, is that you know it was not, it was basically serving as a conduit to lend money to Trump that was actually originating in Russia. Uh, so in other words, Deutsche Bank, Russia would give money to Deutsche Bank, or maybe the, a Russian bank or the Kremlin would give money to Deutsche Bank. It would somehow be funneled to Trump through Deutsche Bank. Or an alternate theory is that uh, the Russian establishment of some sort was basically protecting Deutsche Bank against defaults that Trump would make. So in other words, was you know taking on the risk of the loans to Trump. Uh, so my question for you is, based on your knowledge of this stuff, is that true? No, not to, based upon my knowledge. Um, obviously, I have no knowledge as it relates to Deutsche Bank and who was loaning or investing in Deutsche Bank. Um, the notion that um, he was involved with the Kremlin in advance of the uh, election or anything to do with Russians. You see, that's just, again, the stupidity of the dumbest of the Trump children, which is Eric Trump, made a statement once where a lot of our investors are Russian. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, that's potentially true, in except it's actually not true. Um, <laughs> this, again, goes to the stupidity of Eric. So, for example... They had an investor in Trump International Hotel and Tower, Toronto, and he is Russian and he was considered a Russian oligarch, Alex uh, Snyder. Mm -hmm. All right. It's just it's it's a fact. Um, he happens to also be a Canadian citizen, but he is of Russian descent. However, let's now go with just straight here to New York. By the way, the Trump name has been thrown off of that building a long time ago. On top of that. We also have the Trump Hotel in Soho that was done by um, Czar Realty, which was owned by uh, the Sapir Group. Sapir is not Russian. He's Georgian. It's a completely different country, you fucking idiot, Eric. All right? It doesn't work that way. Not everybody, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Ukraine, right? Romania. These are all different countries. This is not Russia. Now, the fact that they used to be all part of the Soviet Union, that was before the breakup. I mean, the problem with the Trumps is that they don't read, that they don't understand history. They don't understand global politics. They just make certain assertions that our investors are, we have many, many Russian investors. That's just not true at all. Now, you may have some Russians that bought apartments in the various different buildings, but these Russians have been, or Ukrainians or Romanians or whatnot, right? Um, you have a lot who are Bukharian, right? Um, from Bucharest. They're not Russian. They've been living in the United States since 1973, right? Um, around that time period. And they have no connections to Russia. The fact is, you also have a lot of Italians. You have a lot of, you have a lot of, you know, from Africa. You have a lot from South America, you know, a lot from South America. That doesn't mean that, you know, South America, that, you know, Duarte, or if you have anybody from Turkey, that now all of a sudden that you have Erdogan, right, as an investor in Trump properties. It's not true. It's just not true. Um, it's just Eric Trump made a, 
another stupid comment to try to bolster sales or whatnot, including like, for example, the house in Palm Beach that sold for $95 million Mm -hmm. to a Ukrainian oligarch who does have ties to the Kremlin, by the way. But that was not a one-on-one transaction. That was done through a real estate agent, through Sotheby's International Realty. And one thing we know about Trump, if he could keep a dollar, he'll fuck anybody out of a dollar. So he certainly wouldn't give 5% or so to a real estate broker if it was a direct. Do you know you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that notion of, of Russia. Now, does he want to be involved with Russia? Does he want to build a building in Russia? Does he want to become friends with Putin? The answer is yeah, because he believes... He truly believes that Vladimir Putin is the richest man in the world by a multiple simply because he owns 25% of every company Mm -hmm. in Russia, right? That's what Donald Trump was trying to do based on the January 6th riot. He wanted to become the Vladimir Putin of the United States. Unfortunately for him, it didn't work. And so with that, David, I hope I answered your question. It's really been an honor having you, and I want to thank you. Thanks for having me. It was nice talking to you. I want to take this time to thank all of my amazing listeners who have come with me on this ride. Starting next week, Maya Culpa will move to Podcast One Network. While you will likely not notice the change and will be able to listen wherever you get your podcast, it signifies the next chapter of the Maya Culpa story. Just because Donald Trump has left the building, it does not mean we are done with him or that I am done with you. I'm more interested now in how we heal as a nation and move towards a place of sanity than I am with the daily rantings of Donald J. Trump. I imagine many of you feel the same as I do. You're exhausted. Fucking exhausted. Not just from our Cheeto-dusted ex-president, but from the chaos, the noise, the anger, and the fear. I don't have any answers, but I do promise to ask the right questions. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>